especially the body here at First Baptist from the COVID and uh, in our community. And with that, Lord, I would uh, lift up businesses, not only here and across the state of Wyoming, which is now suffering financially, but across our country where some are still closed. And uh, Lord, we need your wisdom to lead us through this trouble. And Father, I lift up uh, Chad as he comes to bring us that word, and I know there's going to be something in it for each of us, and I thank you for the time that he takes to prepare these messages, and uh, Lord, I pray that it's a blessing to each of us. And Lord, I want to also thank you for the uh, generosity of this church body and the support that we have, Lord, to keep going forward in the community of Sheridan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dick, and good morning. Thank you all so much for being here today. Although I've got some bad news for you, it turns out you're not as virtuous as you may think you are. The uh, Harvard Dean of Business came to this realization, and he says we suffer from something called moral overconfidence. He said the gap between how people believe they would behave and how they actually behave is not the same. He says that we rate ourselves as above-average drivers, investors, and employees, even though math dictates that can't be true for all of us. We also tend to believe we are less likely than the typical person to exhibit negative qualities and to experience negative life events, to get divorced, become depressed, or have a heart attack. So, we aren't quite as good as we think we are, and he'll even say that we need to humble ourselves and repent. But see, repentance for Americans, frankly, isn't all that easy. Another writer, a guy by the name of Mark Galley, wrote a book called Jesus, Mean and Wild. He talks about the challenge of repentance in America. And he said that people tend to fall into three categories. And he puts himself in the first category, the pretty okay category. He says that he thinks of, he looks at himself some days, he says it's hard to imagine he's a miserable offender. Goes to church, reads his Bible, helps the homeless, does the dishes, takes out the trash. Doesn't beat his kids. He says most nights I close my day with prayer and confess what he calls some small unimportant sins like sloth, some impatience here and there. Then there's another category of people he calls the false guilt people. He says with them the, the problem with repentance runs deeper. They have been raised in a legalistic environment, carry around a guilt-laden backpack that would bend the knees of a Himalayan Sherpa. And most of the guilt is neurotic, not based on any real transgression, but the product of defective discipleship. Years of Christian nurture has contorted their souls. So after drinking a glass of wine or failing to say the rosary or breaking one of a thousand other man-made religious taboos, they cannot shake the pangs of miserable guilt. And if that's what repentance conjures up, they want nothing of it. But then there's a third category of people he calls those who are in complete spiritual despair. They fight not the false guilt, but what he calls spiritual despair. They believe, and rightly so, that true religion is about love and grace. But they've heard this rumor that the Lord God is a holy God. And they suspect that they 
may just be miserable sinners, so they spend their days making sure these two combustible ideas never mix. Something repentance tries to do. Because if they ever did, such people fear that the resulting explosion would blow their faith to smithereens. And then you add to that this 20th century fascination with self-esteem and a society hooked on affirmation steroids, as he calls it. It's no wonder we've created a faith that can hardly pronounce the word repent. Where do you find yourself in these categories? That's a subject I want to talk about this morning. It's what does wholehearted repentance look like? What does wholehearted repentance look like? Look like the passage we're going to look at today is just three verses. First Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. You may be seated. We're continuing this morning through the book of First Samuel. These are people who are in transition. By the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, it said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that there was no king in Israel. But they're about to get a king. They're in this in-between period. They've meddled around and they've gotten caught up in the culture. Still, they had to put away these false gods. They've learned some harsh lessons along the way. And even as they go and get a king that God will give them, they will struggle with whom they shall put their faith. The leadership of the nation or God himself. It's something that we still struggle with today. And this morning we're talking about repentance. And it comes from this Hebrew word shuv. <clears throat> and it literally means that you're walking in one direction and you turn and you start walking in the opposite direction. That's what it literally means to repent. This idea, shuv. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, You've repented at least once, even if you didn't know it. See, the only way you can become a follower of Jesus Christ, the only way that you can truly know that you need a Savior is to first realize that you are a sinner. And in that, in that admittance that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior and that you look to Christ and you put your trust and faith in Him, there is within that a turning from the old way of life, a turning from the false saviors that you did have, and a turn to your new Savior, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So repentance was built into salvation. However, we need to continue with this attitude of repentance. And as we go through that passage, like we just saw, there's a number of imperatives and commands that go along with this wholehearted repentance that the prophet Samuel was telling them about. So this morning, I want to go through those commands. And first of all, we see that you saw this last week when Pastor R.P. was talking about that ark moving around and the state of the Israelites up to this point. There was a need to accept the preparation of repentance. And then we see that they're called to get rid of their idols, commit to God, and finally serve God. So we'll walk through these, these commands 
as they've popped up in our passage today. So we'll start out with the preparation. God's people had treated the ark as though it was some kind of a lucky rabbit's foot. They thought they could just pop it into battle and they wouldn't have any problems with the Philistines. They would be victorious. But they forgot about the way they were living and the false gods around the, in, in the culture around that they had brought into their own way of worship and life. And they're called back, and God showed them the futility of their thinking. Now, you saw what happened when the Philistines thought they could harness the power of the ark. As though if they just had the throne of God, the God himself would follow, but it did not work that way, did it? Their false gods fell over and crumbled. As it went from town to town, the people suffered with death and disease and destruction. They saw the power of Yahweh, even though they didn't necessarily have faith in that God themselves. <clears throat> then their own pagan priests, when they saw this power of the God of the Israelites, they said, get that thing out of here. We don't want it here in our land anymore. It's doing us no good. And then they brought the ark back, but still, even with the ark back in their presence, the people didn't get it. They didn't realize that it was not the movement of the ark that they needed, but the movement of their own hearts. And if we look back at verse 19 in chapter 6, we see that even after the ark was back, they still didn't get what was going on. The ark came back, and what did they do? A bunch of people that should have known better, they ran up to it. And it says, the Lord struck down some of the people of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. They weren't even supposed to come into eye contact with it. But they looked in it, and he struck down 50,070 of the men. The people grieved because the Lord had struck the people with a hard blow. That's a lot of death in a single moment. And the people were struck with this. They saw it. And even after the ark was returned, the people treated it with no reverence, as though it was just a gold box. And by the time we get to the next chapter, it says in verse 2 of chapter 7, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now we're seeing, now God has their attention. Now we're seeing something happen. After 20 years, after God placed this longing in them through his actions, the people were going to return to him. See, God himself ultimately reveals sin. In Romans chapter 7, it tells us that the law of God was given to us so we would know what sin was. But still, knowing what it was didn't keep anybody from committing those sins. It showed people, rather, they had a need for a Savior, and our Savior came, and He came, and He told the disciples, you're going to need help. And in John chapter 16, Jesus tells His disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you, and when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. As Christians living on this side of the resurrection, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who's helping us. <clears throat> I've used the example of the Holy Spirit being like a physical trainer. He comes into our life, and He's going to get us in shape. 
And like a trainer you'd go to, they, you tell them, look, I want to lose weight. I want to, I want to be stronger. And the trainer says, okay, well, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can cooperate with me or you can not cooperate. This will be a harder business than it would have been otherwise. The Holy Spirit's like a trainer that has 24-hour access to us, making us into people and taking us to places we would not go to make us people that we would never be otherwise. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. A helper to show us our sin. So this is the preparation. And then we get into these commands of the passage we just read, that we just looked at. Let's look again at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's make some initial observations of this verse. This is really the first time Samuel has asserted himself as the leader. So now he's telling the people, he's the religious leader, telling them what to do. When we, when we saw him back in chapter 3, he was still just a young man. But remember, 20 years has passed. Now the people are ready to hear from the prophet. And notice what he says. He says, if you are returning to the Lord. He's not assuming anything. He's older and he's wiser. He's seen these shenanigans that these Israelites have been up to. And he's like, okay. Well, if you're serious about this thing. And he says, how do you do it? He says, do it with all your heart. This Hebrew word for heart is lavav, and it doesn't necessarily have to do solely with emotions. It's both uh, it's emotions and intellect. It's this decision-making part of yourself. He said, that's how you are returning to God, with that place from which you make your decisions. And then there's these three commands that follow. First of all, he says to get rid of your idols. Get rid of your idols. Put away your gods. <clears throat> this goes back to the Ten Commandments. God said, you will have no other gods before me. There's one particular god that's called out, the Ashtaroth. Baal and Ashtaroth went together. Ashtaroth is a reference to a goddess among the, uh, the Philistines and the Canaanites. And it was said that Ashtaroth was both the mother and lover of the god Baal. And through those two, the other pantheon of gods would come. And things had gotten so distorted among the Israelites, there's a good chance they had brought this goddess, that's probably why she's being um, called out here separately, had brought the goddess close to the center of Jewish worship in, with some idea that she would now be the consort of Yahweh himself. And the priests and priestesses of this false religion would engage in temple prostitution and and intercourse right there in the temple with the idea that they could once again uh, induce Baal and Ashtaroth to come together. And uh, Ashtaroth was a goddess of war and fertility, the idea that Baal would, if it was a time where uh, they weren't having good crops, he would spew out his seed on the land. Now, why would they do that? It could be as the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, as they saw destitution. Remember, they had to depend on God to provide them with food. It could be they had a, a fear that this would happen again, a fear that their land would lose its fertility. 
that could have been an impetus for them to think that they had to take matters into their own hands and put these, they, they would be an, an asterisk pole. Uh, it was typically, they found these poles, they were put up uh, at the places of worship among these people that worship Baal. But there's a good chance it was all rooted in fear. And Samuel tells them, get them out, tear down any remnant that you have of these false gods. As a matter of fact, if you remember, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were sleeping with the women who were serving at the tabernacle, probably acting just like the pagans did, having Ashtaroth nearby. Fear is often what produces idols in our lives. And I like the way uh, one commentator states this issue. It is our human tendency to turn away from God and to the gods of fertility all around us to neglect our relationship with him in our pathetic attempt to grasp the promise of momentary significance by depending on anything other than God. Looking to maybe some powerful person to make us feel significant. If we could be their friend, man, we would, we would mean something. So what is your greatest fear? Because that's going to say something about who you really or what you really worship. There's a pastor by the name of Justin Buzzard, and he uses an assessment tool to determine what kind of idol might be lurking in your heart. And he does it like this. So the idols are on one side, and the fear, the corresponding fear, is, is on the other. So if you have an idol of control, chances are you've got a real fear of uncertainty. You want to keep everything under your thumb and under your control. And if you've experienced uh, maybe destitution of some kind. You've gone without hunger. Uh, you've gone without food. You've had hunger. Then, man, you want to control all the grocery shopping. Or it could be approval. If you're really afraid that somebody's going to reject you, then you'll do anything you can to get the approval of others. Or it could be this idol of comfort. You will seek out primarily that which comforts you, whatever it may be. Uh, it could be a drug, a drink. It could be pornography. Uh, it could be physical comforts. I think idol, I, this is probably one of my greatest idols. Um, we have a culture that's pushing lies all the time. And will we seek to make ourselves comfortable by not addressing the lies of this culture? And then finally, this one power. If you're really afraid of humiliation or you're afraid of embarrassment, you could be seeking out power. And this is an interesting one. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. There's a researcher named Jonah Lehrer. And he noted that most of us are nicer as we're climbing up the social ladder. But as we get closer to the top, he says we start acting like a beast. Uh, and in the conclusion of this professor, uh, he said it's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. It can happen among politicians. It can happen among business leaders. And man, can it happen among pastors. He notes that uh, when you ask members of a high power group about speeding. The group concludes that it's okay for them to speed, but that it was important for others to follow the posted speed limit. 
And the rationale was that powerful people are important and had a good reason for speeding. He even concludes that even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. So find your idol. What is it that you fear? What is it that you're scared of? And what's the idol that corresponds to that? God is in control. God is all-powerful. God has said that when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are 100% approved. That's why we don't need these idols. So we accept preparation. We get rid of idols. And then there's also a third command. Uh, we see this in verse 3. When they're told to direct their hearts to the Lord. The prophet says, direct your heart to the Lord. In other words, commit to God. Commit to God. And this is about making God's will your utmost desire. And we talked about this back when we were talking about Hebrews chapter 5. We, we got into this a little more um, about surrendering our motives and our maturity and our emotions to God. And feelings and emotions are not easy to deal with when we start talking about making God's will our desire. They, they can be really good and they can be uh, really bad. And I love what uh, John Piper, he addresses this very well when talking about human emotions. He said, God designed your emotions to be gauges, not guides. They're meant to report to you, not dictate you. The pattern of your emotions, not every caffeine-induced or sleep-deprived one, will give you a reading on where your hope is because they are wired into what you believe and value and how much. Now, this is important. And then he goes on to say that because our emotions are wired into our fallen natures as well as into our regenerate natures, sin and Satan have access to them. And we use them to try and manipulate us to act faithlessly. So look out for emotions. Remember, they're, they're gauges, not guides. So if you look on the dashboard of your car, you've got a gas gauge and you probably have a GPS. Now, you need the gas, right? It puts fuel in your tank. It helps you to go. But it's not a GPS. We need a God positioning system to guide us. Our emotions are not gods. Now, they can fuel us. I think it's great when we get married and we're, we've got what they call the juiced brain because we're in love. But you know what? That can't last forever because you wouldn't get anything done. It's like a, I hate to say brain damage, but it's, you know, you're just, you're not acting the same way. You're not feeling the same way. But at the same time, it can put fuel in the tank. Man, what you wouldn't do because that love you have for that, that woman you're about to marry. And then now it's, it's hard to even pick your socks up off the floor. So watch out for emotions. Don't just give in to emotions. Check them against the truth. If the Bible says no, bring them under the control of the Scriptures. If your parents have said no, dial those emotions back if you're still under the rule of your parents. So commit yourself to God. Then the final imperative also comes from verse 3. Serve Him only. Serve God only. So that's our final command, is to serve God. Serve God. The gods that Israel had been serving demanded horrible prices. 
child sacrifice. Oftentimes they would sacrifice pigs to these gods. That might be why God had commanded the Jews not to offer uh, pork to him. Um, God hated the ways that these gods were worshipped. And when you serve these gods, the ones we talked about, like power, you may be called to sacrifice your family to get it. Maybe not physically, but, but sacrifice time. Less time with your family, less time with your spouse. You know, Jesus said, my burden is light. And service is the key to living a great life. It really is. A life well spent. In his book, The Colors of Hope, a man named Richard Dahlstrom, he describes what he calls something that acts against service oftentimes. He calls it the safety-first mentality. And according to this perspective, the key to living well is living safely. But it isn't really Christ-centered. And he says, if we lock our doors, get an alarm system, save 10%, make sure your investment is insured, take your vitamins, minerals, omega-3S, the ginkgo biloba, and St. John's wort, eat lots of soluble fibers, exercise, get your colonoscopy, and that should do it. You're safe, right? Now, those aren't necessarily bad things. But then he throws up these two examples. One was this incredible athlete named Pete Maravich. They called him Pistol Pete, professional basketball player, in amazing shape. But he dropped dead at the age of 40 years old, shooting basketball. Then there's this other woman, one of the women who she, she's lived just about longer than anyway. She passed away at the age of 122. And she didn't stop smoking until she was 117 because she said she could no longer see the end of the cigarette to light it. So this safety-first posture, he says it's wrong on several levels, several levels, but first and foremost, the good life in Jesus is never defined in terms of length or comfort. To the contrary, Jesus said those who seek to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their lives, spilling them out generously in service to others, because of love for God and humanity, will find them. So use the gifts that, you know, God gave us gifts to gift to the church. That's the purpose of the gifts that God gives us. So serve him. And putting this all together, oh, well, there's the thing I just, just read. Um, we see that the Israelites did what the, the prophet had told them. It says, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So repent wholeheartedly by finding your fear and turning from your idol to God. Think about it. What are you afraid of? What kind of idol have you created? Could be significance, control, power, those things we, we talked about. I want to close with this story about a missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, this is a longtime missionary to India who is about to go and visit a group uh, in India that he had ministered to before. They knew that he was coming. And uh, there was no road into this village. You reached it by crossing a river. You could do it either on the south side or the north. And the congregation thought he would come by the south. So they arranged all of, of uh, 
the items of, of a celebratory ceremony. You know, they had um, a, an Indian village that had music, fireworks, there were garlands, fruit, they had dancers, all at the southern end of the village, anticipating him getting there. He said, unfortunately, I entered the village at the north end, and there are only a few goats and chickens. Crisis! Then he actually had to go and disappear in the jungle for a while, while the people did a U-turn and came back and reassembled at the north end where he was going to enter. Then he reappeared. He said, this is what repentance means. We kind of get a wrong impression of it, he says in the New Testament, by turning away from our sins. This might look like a traditional call for moral reformation, but that's not the point. There's nothing about the sins in the text of Mark 1. The point is this, that the reign of God has drawn near, but you can't see it because you are looking the wrong way. You are expecting the wrong thing. What you think is God isn't God at all. You have to be, as Paul says, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to go through a mental revolution. Otherwise, the reign of God will be totally hidden from you. Yes, we do turn away from our sin, but remember what we are turning back to. And maybe I should say, remember who we are turning back to when we turn from our sins and follow the Lord again. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for the salvation you made available through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would show us those idols in our hearts. Give us the strength and the courage to turn. We thank you for helping us in this, Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be cooperative with your ministry in our life, that we wouldn't grieve you. I pray that you would help us to uh, love each other well and encourage each other, even as we are all in this process and gaining this attitude of repentance. I pray for everyone here today. Lord, I pray that this COVID virus would leave us and leave us quickly. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Peace to you. Thank you for being here this morning, and you're dismissed.